I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Badass of the Week is an iHeartRadio podcast produced by High Five Content. It's November 8th, 1942, and American spy Virginia Hall is on the run from the Nazis. Her plan is to escape to Spain. But between Virginia and Salvation lies a 30-mile trek through the Pyrenees Mountains, on foot, in the snow, and with a suitcase full of secret radio equipment. She radios her handlers that she hopes Cuthbert won't cause any problems for her. They respond with just five words. If Cuthbert troublesome, eliminate him. Hello, and welcome back to Badass of the Week. Uh, my name is Ben Thompson, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Pat Larish. Pat, uh, how are you doing? Doing okay, doing okay, bopping along. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. We've been uh, we've been doing the show for a while now, and we are on episode seven, and the way we internally number these, it's episode 007, so we thought maybe this would be a good time to talk about some spy stuff. Uh, Pat, have you seen any of the James Bond movies? Have you heard of this I... guy, James Bond? <laughs> Uh, Bond? Uh, James Bond? Yeah, I think I've heard of him. <laughs> Are you a fan of the movies at all? They're fun. They're fun. Yeah. They certainly can be. Some of them are very not fun, but some of them are pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. Some of them age better than others. Oh, that's true. You know, you know, I'm having a little bit of deja vu because starting about two years ago, I was on a, a show called Podcasters Assemble where we watched every single James Bond movie in order and recorded like our takes on them. And so I saw them all within the last two years, I've watched every James Bond movie. Yeah, the writing got a lot more sophisticated. 
FFSA. Absolutely. Absolutely. Bond's also fun to watch because they have this thing of like, whatever the most popular movie was a year or two ago, Bond does the next thing. So Moonraker was like two years after Star Wars, you know, and then Casino Royale was a couple years after Jason Bourne. And I was like, okay, whatever action movies are doing, we're just going to kind of do that and put James Bond in it and people will come see it. So uh, I do have an appreciation for how much this character and these movies have changed so dramatically and so drastically in the, I mean, what, 40 years they've been doing it now? 50 years? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So James Bond was created by Ian Fleming. People probably already know. And he had served in the Special Operations Executive during World War II. So he was uh, like a real-life spy during World War II working against the Nazis. And we're going to talk about a couple people today that probably helped uh, influence his uh his stories. Yeah. And given that uh, Fleming was working on the front lines with, you know, the the SOE, you know, one of the world's first modern intelligence services, um, I bet he saw all sorts of things and he heard about even more. And he probably got a lot of material that way, not just for plots and stories, but also characters, like, like the psychology, the personality, what is it like to be someone actually doing these things? There's an entire Wikipedia entry on people Fleming met who were, it's just like a list of people who probably influenced the fictional James Bond character in some way. Yeah, absolutely. When everybody, he's just writing about his job, I guess, right? <laughs> like, and then it becomes James Bond. Like you do. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some big names on there. People like Fitzroy McLean and Forrest Thomas that I, I've written about on the website or that we will talk about in the future on the show. But, you know, we were talking about movies and we were talking about influences for James Bond. So I'm going to talk about a guy who might have been an influence for James Bond and also played a villain in a James Bond movie. I'm going to talk about Christopher Lee. Wait, Christopher Lee? You mean the actor who played... Well, besides the Bond villain, um, who was it in Lord of the Rings? Saruman, the bad guy, yeah. one of the bad guys, and Count Dooku? It's the same guy. He was uh, he was a World War II British soldier fighting uh, on the front lines against the Germans. And there's a great, uh, one of my favorite stories with him is there's this great piece on the uh, behind the scenes for Return of the King. Saruman gets stabbed in the back by Grima Wormtongue and... Christopher Lee makes this noise and Peter Jackson's like, no, 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 cut. He's talking about it. He's like, ah, oh, cut. And then I went up to Christopher Lee and I was like, no, don't, when you get stabbed, don't, don't do that. Just be like, go like, wah. And Christopher Lee looks at him and he says, that's not the sound a man makes when he's stabbed in the back. And Peter Jackson was like, and I could feel, I really felt like he knew that that was true and I didn't correct him again. So I just kept the original audio in there. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> It's probably authentic. Mm -hmm. I'm going to leave it at that. Okay. So how does Christopher Lee get to the point where he can say that with such authority? (laughs) And clearly he, I mean, either he knew what he was talking about or he's such a good actor that he convinced us that he knew what he was talking about. Um, So yeah. So yeah. Tell us about Christopher Lee. Let's do it. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Probably best known for playing Darth Tyrannus, Sauron the White, Dracula, and basically everybody from, like, Fu Manchu to Gregory Rasputin, to like, weirdly, he was in like the biopic on the guy who founded Pakistan. He's six foot five. He's a world champion fencer. He speaks six languages. He does all of his own stunts. And he, according to Guinness, has been in more on screen sword fights than any other actor in history. He also served for five years defending democracy against the Nazis. No big deal, like you do. Um, he was a British commando. And then in 2013, at the age of 91, he wrote, performed on, and released his second progressive symphonic power metal EP about the life of Charlemagne. Put it up for free on his MySpace page because why not? So in addition to being a badass actor and fencer and World War II guy, he's also a history buff? He's a classicist, Pat. He has a degree in classics, just like you. (laughs) See, classics professors can be badass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay, he's Quite possibly the most prolific actor in motion picture history. He was born in 1922. His mother was an Italian countess who is actually descended from Charlemagne. And she was so important that they let her wear the royal seal of Frederick Barbarossa. He also has an ancestor on that side through Italy. Uh, He was the secretary of state for the pope who refused to attend the coronation of Napoleon. And that guy's buried in a tomb next to Raphael, not the Ninja Turtle, but the painter. Lee's father is a distant relative of Robert E. Lee and um, was a decorated war hero who was a colonel fighting in the, the Royal Rifle Corps during World War I and the Boer War. 
So, like I said, he went and he got his classics degree. He was on the fencing team. He also played ice hockey and rugby. He's a big dude. He's 6'5", right? He's big and strong. Uh, and that's why, you know, he's so physically imposing in his film roles. He got this job working as an office clerk that paid him one pound a week, which seems like it's probably not very much money. Yeah. yeah. Was it was it like an internship then or just just didn't pay well? It's just a desk job. That's what desk jobs paid. 1938, I guess. Okay. So in 1939, the Winter War begins where Russia invades Finland. And Christopher Lee and his friends, they're only about 18 years old at this point, but they try to sign up and enlist into the Finnish army. And he may have actually gone over there. He was never deployed into combat, but he did attempt to join the Finnish army in order to help them fight the Russians in 1939, which is pretty cool. Whatever his plans were for fighting the Russians uh, never really came to be because in 1940, before he was able to see any action, in Finland, Germany and England went to war, and he had a much more pressing uh, duty that he had to fulfill to king and country. So Christopher Lee joins the Royal Air Force in 1940. Uh, he goes British Home Guard first during the Battle of Britain, and then he joins the RAF. Uh, he originally wanted to be a pilot, but he had some kind of problems with his optic nerves, so he basically like was relocated to the intelligence service of the Royal Air Force. So Christopher Lee is a uh, is an officer in the Royal Air Force doing mostly intelligence work. So he's forwardly deployed into airfields. I think first he's in South Africa and then he's going through North Africa, Sicily, Italy, and probably the Balkans as well. And a lot of what he's doing is helping coordinate the RAF working with ground units, uh, especially like ground units behind enemy lines. And... Christopher Lee, like famously, never really liked to talk too much about his military service. Didn't talk about it, didn't really say much about it. Has definitely said that he worked a little bit with some of the British Special Forces as well. And so Special Operations Executive, which was behind enemy lines like counterintelligence, espionage, sabotage. You know, SOE was part of the group that sent Eastern European partisans and rebels into Nazi supply lines to prevent them from bringing reinforcements up to the Western and Eastern front. It was called the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, and they did things like destroy the German heavy water plant in Norway when they were getting close to making a nuclear weapon. And they did things like help the Yugoslavian partisans fight against the Germans. Um, they helped the Poles and the, the, the French, and they helped throw off the plans for D-Day, just deceive the Germans into thinking that the landing was going to be either in Italy or in Calais instead of at Normandy. Uh, he's also said that he worked with the Long Range Desert Patrol, which is really badass stuff. So these guys, they are the pre-version of the SAS. Their unit eventually became the Special Air Service, which is like the special forces of the British military. But what these guys would do is they would attack German airfields in northern Africa behind enemy lines. So they would get like a jeep and they would mount machine guns on the jeep and they would drive it around. It's like five British guys on a jeep that has airplane machine guns mounted on the front of it. And they're driving around uh, German airfields, machine gunning all the German aircraft on the ground set off bombs and then they drive away and there's just explosions and wreckage in their wake. And it's it's so cool and it's so what they did was so amazing. Christopher Lee is working with these these units. He never really talked about in what capacity he was working with these units. I don't know. He didn't talk about it in the 
In the year or so after he died, a few news articles came out saying that, oh, you know, we don't have any record of him being in the SAS or the SOE. Like maybe he maybe he embellished some of these stories as an as an RAF uh, liaison officer. He would have coordinated the Royal Air Force working with these guys. That is almost certainly possibility. But these uh, special operations things, you know, I, I don't know, Pat, this is one of these history things uh, that mm-hmm. some of this stuff gets a little fuzzy, right? Yeah, it's hard to pin down. It's hard to it's hard to document. Right, right. Was he on a Jeep machine gunning German airplanes? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe he was in a forward air base coordinating the British planes that were going to fly and give cover to whatever German airplanes took off from that airfield. Maybe he was doing something completely different. We don't know. Nobody really knows. He knew, but he didn't want to talk about it. So what we're talking about with this is influences for James Bond. And it's worth mentioning that Ian Fleming, the author of the James Bond novels, the creator of the character, was step cousins with Christopher Lee. So presumably some of this probably rubbed off on Ian Fleming a little bit. Ian Fleming was in the SOE, even if... Christopher Lee was completely 100% lying about his entire involvement in World War II whatsoever, which we know is not true because we have service records for him that he was part of it. Um, But even if everything was bullshit, he could have still told Ian Fleming some of these stories and some of it could have made its way into the Bond stuff. So I am very comfortable listing him as a potential influence for the character of James Bond. Pat, you have any problems with that? I'll fight anybody. (laughs) No, I have zero problems with that. I have zero problems with that. Because, you know, James Bond is fiction and it's all about the stories, right? Christopher Lee is a real life badass. And I I, I won't hear anybody say anything else about it. So he gets into acting in 1948. He's doing like really hard roles, like real work me kind of stuff for almost 10 years. Just little bit parts here and there, wherever he can get it. And... He finally gets his big break in 1957. He got paid $300 to play Frankenstein's monster for Hammer Films. And I don't know if you're familiar with Hammer Films, but they're just like, they did all of like the schlocky, like Wolfman, Dracula, mummies movies in like, you know, the 50s, 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, stuff that shows up on, uh, that used to show up on Creature Feature on Saturday afternoon on whatever TV station that was. When I was growing up. Right, exactly. Yeah, like they're, they're Elvira movies. Yeah. And uh, that's exactly what he was in. And and he played Frankenstein's monster, which he got the role because he was 6'5". And nobody in Hollywood is even close to as tall as him. So he looked really good on camera next to some of these shorter actor guys. So the year after Frankenstein, he gets Dracula. And then for the next decade, he plays Dracula in seven or eight of the horror of Dracula movies. Uh, and everything kind of blows up for him from there. So... Our Bond connection here is in 1974, Christopher Lee played Scaramanga in The Man with the Golden Gun. It was the ninth Bond movie, and it was based off of the 12th Bond novel, which was published after Ian Fleming's death. So Lee was basically an inspiration for James Bond. Then he went on to play a Bond villain in a movie, which I think is awesome. The Man with the Golden Gun is is not a great Bond movie, but Christopher Lee lives on an island surrounded by hot bikini babes and tattoo from fantasy island and he drives a car that turns into an airplane he wants to take over the world using renewable solar energy the details of which are not very well explained over the course of the story but that's what he wants to do uh and he carries the gun that is the the best gun in the golden eye nintendo 64 game 
I feel like if Fleming had been around, Fleming died 10 years before this movie came out, but if he had been around, he'd probably have approved of all of this. It sounds like Ian Fleming would have been totally into that. He's been in Academy Award winning movies and he's been in Elvira movies, right? And the stuff you see on Channel 800 at four o'clock in the morning. (laughs) He's almost always the villain and he's been in something like 300 pieces of media, movies, TV shows and things. So he's probably died on camera more than anybody in history. Um, And uh, I mean, the roles that he's had are are awesome, right? He was the he was the Count de Rochefort in in several Three Musketeers movies. He was Dracula. He was the mummy. He was Willy Wonka's dad. He was an emperor of China, the Grim Reaper, Lucifer, Ramses and Vlad the Impaler. He was in A Tale of Two Cities and played in Hamlet alongside Laurence Olivier. But he was also in a softcore porn based on the works of the Marquis de Sade. And he was in a movie called Howling 2 Werewolf Bitch with the dude from Space Mutiny. He's all over the place. I just can I just interrupt and say I have a lot of questions. I'm not going to ask them, but I have a lot of questions. (laughs) Howling 2 Werewolf Bitch is not streaming on Netflix, if that's what you're wondering. (laughs) I tried. Ben, you're performing a public service, you know, (laughs) watching or trying to chase down movies so the rest of us don't have to. I'll write it off as a business expense on my taxes. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. IMDb lists him as the uh, the center of the Hollywood universe because because he's been in so many movies. You can basically six degrees of Kevin Bacon him in like three steps instead of six. Uh, pretty much anybody in the world. I haven't done it for myself yet, but I should. You should. He also belongs to three stuntman unions because he does all of his own stunts. He got his face busted once by being thrown through an actual plate glass window that wasn't a breakaway one by accident. There was like a props problem and he went right through it. He uh, he was he died and fell into an open grave in one of the Dracula movies and hurt himself. And then he had an off-camera drunken sword fight with Errol Flynn and he got his hand slashed, which is just, there's that's a whole story that I would love to hear sometime. I would too, yeah. Uh, Christopher Lee has appeared in more on-screen sword duels than any other actor ever, according to, uh, to the Guinness Book. He was a, a very good fencer. He fenced in college and he was apparently really... Uh, very successful at like competitive fencing and he's been in everything from like pirate duels to like musketeer fights to uh taking on a couple guys half his age with lightsabers on whatever they called the star destroyers in the prequel movies he's also a classically trained singer and later in life in his 80s he decided he wanted to start recording symphonic metal albums and so in uh when he was 88 And then again, when he was 91, he released hardcore symphonic power metal concept albums about the life of Charlemagne. He's played live shows with Rhapsody and Manowar. Uh, On his 90th birthday, he released a single called Let Legend Mark Me as the King with music written by the guys from Judas Priest. And he's got he got like a, a golden hammer from like the, you know, the metal, the people who like give out awards for for heavy metal albums. It's not bad. I've listened to it mm-hmm. and I can recommend it. Oh, cool. Cool. And didn't you, weren't you saying earlier, uh, wasn't he descended from Charlemagne on through some ancestor or something? Yeah, on his mom's side. So he was for real. Dis- I mean, one of the funny things about genealogy is that if you trace anybody back far enough, they're descended by Charlemagne or William the Conqueror or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or Genghis Khan or something. Yeah, yeah something okay. like that. Okay, okay. He's also an expert golfer. He was the only actor to be accepted into the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers, which is the most prestigious golf country club in the world. And he married a Danish supermodel and stayed married to her for over 40 years. He was knighted. He was a commander of the Order of St. John's of Jerusalem, knight bachelor of the Order of the British Empire, once got a medal from Mikhail Gorbachev. And uh, and then he died at, in 2015 at the age of 93 uh, and just just a crazy life. And the truth of the matter is, you know, OK, 
maybe these stories, some of these stories were embellished, but even if we set aside the stories that some people are questioning, the stuff that's solid is still so badass. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Like, oh, he he talked to the SOE on the radio and he didn't actually like walk into the office. Like, get out of here, man. Get out of here with this. And also, there's also something about being so, there's also about being a badass kind of person where you have this sort of aura where people are prone to believe stories about you, even if, you know, eh, who knows? That's true, right? And there's definitely an argument to be made here that let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to that Peter Jackson story of like, that's not the sound a man makes when he's stabbed in the back, right? I would make a solid argument that if Christopher Lee had never stabbed a person in the back, had never seen a person be stabbed in the back, we know that this is probably not true because we do have accounts of him that are like verified of him being in combat on the front lines. Uh -huh. The airfields he was working at were bombed. Friends of his were being blown up. Like, I don't want to, I mean, we, we know that that is true, right? We just don't know the full details of every little thing that he did during the course of the war. But like, we know he was in combat. We know he was, he was friends with people who were killed in action, like people at his airfield, like he was wounded a couple times in battle. But let's take, let's say hypothetically, this guy's never killed anybody, never been around a real dead body in his entire life. And he says that to Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson's like, oh, shit, like, that was scary. I, I, I'm not going to talk to this guy anymore. I'm going to believe this forever. That's also badass. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. You know, and I'm also wondering, maybe some of the, some of his records are just still classified. You know, who knows? I mean, that's what he always said, right? Yeah. That's what he has always said is like, I'm not really supposed to talk about it. And I mean, like, look, I, there's a lot of guys who served in the military. They don't want to talk about it, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. yeah. You can't make them. And, and whatever the truth is, uh, it died with him. And I'm OK leaving it that way. So what I, what I want to leave all of this with, like, I know I've been kind of rambling on about this. I, I just discovered these articles like earlier this week when I was like brushing up on the Christopher Lee research and they, I'm still kind of hot under the collar about him. I'll leave it at this. When Christopher Lee was doing interviews uh, for like various like press things or whatever, um, interviewers would had a, you know, would sometimes ask him about his military service. They'd say like, oh, you know, what, what happened in the war? Didn't you fight in World War II and you fight the Nazis and you were in Italy and you were, he was at Monte Cassino. We know that for sure. And they're like, oh, well, what happened? Uh, what was your service like? And he would go, uh, well, can you keep a secret? And the reporter would lean in really close, like they were going to get a good scoop and be like, yeah, yeah, I can keep a secret. And Christopher Lee would say, so can I. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello! Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... 
We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back from the break. We've been spending a lot of time talking about James Bond and influences on James Bond. And, you know, if you look at that Wikipedia entry of influences on James Bond, they're all men. I mean, they're all badasses to be sure, but they're all men. What about women in the James Bond universe? Because you've got Bond girls, right? And Bond girls, okay, so... They're potentially badass, but the way they're presented is like, yeah, they're never the main story. It's sometimes it's not great. Yeah. There's some pretty solid ones. I mean, my favorite, uh, if we're going to go women in the Bond franchise, is probably Dame Judi Dench as M. She's awesome consistently throughout everyone. She's like maybe my favorite character in the whole series. Agreed. Agreed. So there are yeah. some good ones. Yeah. And there's some um, pretty rough ones also. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we've got fictional special agents and fictional sidekicks and whatever, and we've got Judy Dench. You know, at the same time uh, that Ian Fleming was working in the SOE, you also have plenty of historical real life women working in the SOE, some of them at desk jobs, some of them out in the field doing incredibly badass things. You know, uh, Winston Churchill, what did he call it? The Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. And then I mean, you could totally imagine someone like Virginia Hall coming along and saying, I am no gentleman. That was really good. You just dropped a Lord of the Rings reference in there. Mm. It's tying all together. It's so good. So who is this Virginia Hall? Well, she's, uh, she's, uh, she's American, but she winds up working for the SOE. She was incredibly well-educated in languages, economics. She went to all sorts of fancy institutions of higher learning, you know, Radcliffe and Barnard, which is women's equivalent of Harvard and Columbia, especially in those days, George Washington University. She continued her education in France, Germany, Austria. She was really interested in foreign service, international relations. In 1931, she got a job as a consular service clerk in Poland. And that's, you know, she's a clerk. So it's a, it's a desk job, paperwork. She wanted to be a for real diplomat, like an actual diplomat. 
And was that a realistic option for an American woman in the 1930s? Even one as qualified as Virginia Hall? Well, you know, it wasn't impossible, but realistically, very few women got hired into, got selected to be the actual diplomats, but she persisted. She kept working in the consular service. She kept living her best life. Um, at one point, she was stationed in Izmir, Turkey, and she went hunting, but there was a hunting accident, and she wound up taking a shotgun shell to her leg, and it didn't go well. She got gangrene, so she needed to have it amputated, and she got a prosthetic leg. And what would you do, Ben, if you had a prosthetic leg? Well, shotgun shell to the leg is like, hopefully not a thing I'm going to ever have to deal with. That's like a little outside my realm of badassitude. I admit that was an unfair question, Ben. Uh, what does she do with it? She names it like you do. She names it Cuthbert. So this is Cuthbert. Cuthbert must be eliminated. Yes. Being ordered to literally shoot herself in the foot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so she's hiking the Pyrenees in the snow and the rain and the, the, the you know, the, the freezing cold with the Nazis hunting her and she's got a wooden leg. Yes. Yes, indeed. Because why... Why should anything be easy? Women are just held to a higher standard sometimes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So how does she get from a hunting accident in Turkey to uh, the Pyrenees? There are a few years. So let me let me walk you through those uh, the intervening years. She keeps working as a consular clerk. Um, she's posted to Venice in Italy. She's posted to Tallinn in Estonia. So she gets to see a lot of Europe. And she, you know, every time she gets a chance, she applies for an actual diplomatic job. But in 1937, she's turned down, like officially turned down, because apparently there is this rule on the books, and it's, you know, by our standards, it's incredibly discriminatory. There's a rule on the books against hiring people with disabilities for diplomatic positions. And I mean, honestly, I don't blame her. She just got fed up with being a clerk, and she resigned in 1939. Um, but this is Virginia Hall. She doesn't she doesn't stay still for very long. You know, this is 1940s rolling around, and she became an ambulance driver for the French army. So France was defeated. And so we're now in Vichy, France. And you know, what what do you what what are you gonna do? You know, you're a former ambulance driver. Um Virginia Hall manages to get connected with the British SOE. And she's actually the second women agent sent by the SOE to France, and she's the first SOE woman agent to be there long term. She's got a great cover story. She's uh, she is or claims to be or poses as a reporter for the New York Post, and it's. It's a great cover story because she can go around asking people questions. She's American and America's still neutral. America's still not part of the war yet. So that's a great cover because, you know, you can't really go attacking an American journalist when you're Germany and you don't want America to get involved with the war. Mm -hmm. So she goes around as a newspaper reporter and she's really good at changing her costume, changing her clothing, changing her makeup, how she presents herself. And so sometimes she's a newspaper reporter in like chic Parisian couture. And uh, sometimes she morphs herself into a nondescript person you wouldn't give a second glance to if you passed on the street. And she, in addition to collecting information, she also has to do all sorts of things. She has to figure out the job that she has to do. So she's setting up contacts, you know, putting the right people in contact with the right other people. She has to figure out who to bribe, how much to bribe them, how to bribe them, where and how to hide. She's also, you know, she's interacting with or she's in touch with um, agents who are on the run. So she's providing support 
you know, sometimes material, sometimes moral support. She oversees the distribution of wireless sets. Um, so the communication equipment, the radio equipment that these agents use to report back to London. And, you know, these are not little, like dinky little cell phones that you can hold, you know, that you lose in the bottom of your purse. This is, you know, these are radio, like bulky radio equipment. Right. 1940s, 1939 radio equipment, right? She's got a 1939 wooden leg and a 1939 radio equipment. It's like, you know, there's no computers. This is like, <laughs> this is a big thing, right? It's, it's, you said it was a briefcase or a suitcase or something that it all Some, fit in yeah, one radio. Yeah. And recruits French operatives. I'm sure she's using her language skills to great effect here. Um, fun side note, um, one of the operatives she recruits is a woman named Germaine Guérin, who is a madame of a brothel in Paris. And uh, Madame Guérin set up safe houses and passed along info that her employees, which is to say the sex workers, picked up from their German clients. That is a good intelligence contact to have. Simply managing all of these tasks and all of these logistics, just simply the logistical side of it is pretty badass. But then also remember, this is, you know, this is 1940, 1941 France. And Virginia Hall knew that, okay, in addition to all the logistical stuff, there's the threat of being captured by the Gestapo, being tortured by the Gestapo, being killed by the Gestapo, and also not blowing her cover. So this is you know, there's this there's this threat. There's this real threat to her and the mission. Yeah, it's I mean, it's the Gestapo, right? It's what mm -hmm. what everybody like accuses other agencies of being, right? It's the worst one. Yeah. And uh and she knows what they do, right? She's probably got like contacts or colleagues or other people that are like going through, you know, torture slash death slash who knows what else, uh, by these agents. So it's it's not like she doesn't isn't imminently aware of the danger at all times and knows exactly what is going to happen if she gets caught. Exactly. Exactly. And she just keeps going. At some point, they move her to the Haute-Loire region, which is more in the southern part of France. A big part of her job is to make radio broadcasts back to the SOE in London. But these transmissions could be traced by the Gestapo. And so you have to imagine this is Virginia Hall. She's lugging around her briefcase or whatever with this clunky radio equipment. And she also, she has to mix it up. So, you know, maybe one time she's broadcasting from like some attic somewhere, but then she wants to, you know, she has to pack up and move someplace else. Maybe she's broadcasting from a safe house some other time. Maybe sometimes she's broadcasting from like, you know, some old abandoned barn. This isn't like... This is radio transmission. This isn't being beamed to a satellite over a secure network, right? This is like somebody standing there with a piece of handheld equipment can pick up your radio broadcast and trace it to the barn that you're at. And so you make the radio broadcast and you move. And these broadcasts are like drop weapons here, you know, drop paratroopers here, drop uh, secret agents here to move on to their next thing. The rendezvous point is this, the code name is this, the whatever is this. And then she's got to get out of there because as soon as she starts that transmission, German agents are trying to triangulate her position and uh, and come find her. Yeah. So it's like the clock is ticking as soon as she hits the on switch. And, you know, if you want a, a visual for this, there's a painting from uh, 2006 by the artist Jeffrey Bass. And I love this painting because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an artistic representation, but the scene is, you know, we're imagining Virginia Hall, this kind of honestly prim looking, you know, 1940s 
white American woman, and she's got this equipment, this kind of clunky equipment set up in a barn. It's in the room of a barn. There's straw on the floor. And this is, okay, this is so not a cell phone. How do you power this equipment? Well, someone else in the SOE had devised this way to use an old bicycle to crank the power to do the radio equipment. And in this painting, she's actually got a guy helping her. So there's this guy in the background managing the bike crank, like as a generator or something. And then she's sitting there looking really intently, doing her broadcast and making sure she gets the message absolutely right. And probably part of her brain is also thinking, okay, okay, how, how fast can I do this? And you know, where's my next safe house or attic or barn to go to? It's clearly a barn, you know, like wooden walls. It's kind of dark, straw on the floor. There is some sunlight coming through a window and sitting on the windowsill without a care in the world is a cat. I mean, honestly, like this setup kind of sounds like exactly what I do when I record my half of the podcast. It's like just sitting there with somebody hand cranking like a, a wheel and some cat that doesn't care about anything and mm-hmm. <laughs> suitcase full of equipment. <laughs> so anyway, cat or no cat, Virginia Hall, Agent Hall, we're now in 1942 and she's in the city of Lyon. Okay, there's so many like side stories we could go into here. Long story short, she's feeling way too much pressure from the Gestapo. Like they're really stepping up things. They're kind of onto her. They're, they're kind of starting to infiltrate her network of contacts in ways that she's very not okay with. And there is this guy who was a priest, but claimed to be part of the Gloria network, which is like this resistance network. He claimed to have lots of good intel. Virginia Hall had her doubts, but you know, she went ahead with like interacting with this guy anyway. Uh, this guy, his name was uh, Robert Alesh. He was even able to send fake messages back to London. Very not good. So this is all of the danger that Virginia Hall has been in. It's now doubled, tripled. She needs to get the hell out of Lyon. So this guy was an enemy agent. Uh-huh. Yep, 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 yep. He is an enemy agent. Um, danger, danger. So this is November of 1942. And I mentioned this because you know it's 1942. This is where we're at in the World War. And also it's November. So it's not like mild spring weather. What she decides to do is something that some other secret agents also do is go to the Pyrenees. This is, you know, this is the Pyrenees. These are the, this is the 3,000 foot high mountain range that separates France from Spain. And Spain, relatively speaking, is safer than France for her at this moment. Right. They're neutral in the war, but they're friendly to Germany because they have a fascist dictator. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So she wants to go to Spain, get a breather, and she wants to go across the Pyrenees. So there's a guide who, there's a guide who has helped other agents. Okay, like there's kind of a system in place, but um, it's a system that's kind of flawed. This particular guide doesn't really like the idea of guiding a woman spy through the Pyrenees. He's got this little bit of a hangup about that. But okay, sure, fine. So Virginia has to put up with prejudice from this guy. And it's November in the mountains. So it's going to be cold. It's going to be icy. It's going to be rainy. There might be snow. And, you know, there are paths through the mountain, but you don't know how safe they're going to be. And remember, she's doing this 
with a wooden leg. Now, mind you, she's had several years of excellent practice with the wooden leg, but still it's with a wooden leg and lugging her radio equipment with her. So she's schlepping through the mountains. And on the other side is Spain. And well, basically, when she gets to the other side of the mountains, she gets thrown in a Spanish prison. Because, like you said, Ben, it's run by a bunch of fascists. She festers in the prison for a while, and she manages to get out. She had the option of staying in Spain and doing kind of relatively safe work once she got out of that Spanish prison. And I, th- I think it's worth saying that she got out of the prison. Uh, and my understanding of this is that they didn't know who they had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she could keep secrets. She could keep secrets. Yeah, and, and the, the Germans' intel wasn't completely 100% accurate anyway. They thought she was Canadian. And... This is so. This is Virginia Hall. Is she going to cool her heels doing something relatively safe in Spain? No, nope. She goes right back to France, and she's um, she goes back to the same general region. Uh, her alias or her persona this time around, she was supposed to pose as a much older, heavier country woman, uh, like a you know like a a farmer's wife or farmer's widow type person. Um, she dyed her hair white. And she, you know, probably changed her posture and everything. So basically her, like her cover story was, yeah, she's taking care of cows in the French countryside. And she was able to, you know, again, just do her thing. Um, She coordinated parachute drops. And, you know, among the people, among the agents uh, she was helping come in and the parachute drop was... Lieutenant Paul Goyot, who is French-American, and we'll hear about him just a little bit later. And she's trying to throw off the Germans for D-Day. The stuff that I was talking about with Christopher Lee and the SOE was that like so much of D-Day depended on misdirection of where the landings were going to be and when they were coming. Mm-hmm. When they happened, the French needed to be ready to fight, right? The French have to know when and where the Allies are coming, and the Germans can't know. And so you have that double agent priest, right? You have people trying to mess with you. And like, this is kind of a very high tension moment here of like, mm-hmm. the stuff, the work she's doing isn't, is incredibly vital to the survival of all of those people landing on Omaha Beach, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The stakes are very, very high. And it works. It works. D-Day was successful. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. Um, D-Day worked. (laughs) D-Day worked. Yeah, D-Day worked. And, you know, World War II comes to a close. I realize I'm skipping over a lot here. So what does does Agent Hall do? What does our Virginia do? Well, she wants to continue working. Uh, So at this point... It's more about working for the CIA rather than the SOE. Well, the the SOE kind of broke off into like the SOE eventually became basically MI6 and the CIA because there were a lot of Americans coming in in the later years to SOE and it was this combined arms thing. And yeah, like a lot of like, I mean, she was OG CIA, right? Mm -hmm, Totally. And, you know, this is Agent Virginia Hall. She's coming in with all of this experience, all of these skills, all of this know-how and she was hoping to get more field work. She loved being in the field. She was hoping for promotions, but she kept getting passed over. And this is not the first time we've heard that. Um, so she gets stuck in a desk job. She's analyzing the intel that other agents bring in, you know. Oh. Um, yeah. And in the 1950s, she does 
get some more responsibilities. She was in charge of ultra-secret paramilitary operations in France uh, to set up a model that other European countries could follow if they wanted to set up resistance in case there was ever an invasion by the Soviets, because we're now in the Cold War period. And she was, uh, to the people who knew her and actually worked with her, she was an incredibly valued member of the CIA. I mean, she's Virginia frickin' Hall. But, um, you know, this is, it's a job. And in any job, sooner or later, you're going to have performance reports. And she got a poor rating. She got a poor performance rating. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And this was by some higher up who had never even observed her work. And I mean, honestly, that's a, that's an HR violation if I ever heard one. But the colleagues who actually knew her work and actually worked with her, they thought she was great. And they, they said that she was clearly being sidelined because she was so badass that clearly other people were feeling threatened by her. So she, you know, she worked at the CIA in you know whatever capacity she was able to, until her mandatory retirement. And so, do you remember that um, Lieutenant Paul Goyot, who was in one of those parachute drops? Yeah, one of the the French resistance guys. He was French American. He was an American agent who parachuted in to help coordinate the resistance. Mm -hmm. Reader, she married him, and they retired to uh, you know they retired to Maryland. She was from Baltimore. How is this not a James Bond thing, right? You, I know, right? You end up getting together with the parachuting in like secret agent while you're doing your own secret agent stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I guess we can call him a, a hall boy, maybe. A hall boy. Yeah, I like that. Instead of a Bond girl. I, I, it doesn't have quite the ring to it. But yeah, yeah, sure. She did receive... Um, you know, various medals and recognitions. I'm not going to list her entire resume. President Harry S. Truman, before Virginia Hall retired, President Truman wanted to give her public recognition for everything that she had achieved because, I mean, obviously, this stuff is so cool. It deserves recognition. But she wasn't she wasn't ready to blow her cover yet. So she said, no, I do not want public recognition. And Truman just gave her her medal in a little private little ceremony. It was just Virginia Hall and her mom. Uh, Virginia Hall at one point said, yeah, okay, not bad for a girl from Baltimore. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what we've been talking about, right? Like she was, you know, badass deep cover secret agent escaping over the Pyrenees and wounded in battle and also hooking up with other secret agents like this is totally a James Bond story if you like just switched her and her husband's genders like he would be on that list for James Bond influences on that Wikipedia page mm -hmm. yeah I love it I think it's an awesome story I mean it doesn't get any better than that right yeah so that's Virginia Hall and and you know she now is finally getting uh, some of the recognition that she deserves um, now now that she's no longer, you know, she's no longer with us. So I suppose she's no longer worried about blowing her cover. Yeah, I mean, if, if that's why we haven't heard of her, like I'm totally fine if she doesn't want and doesn't want anybody to know, right? There's always those badasses who just do badass shit and then fade off into the darkness and nobody knows what happened to them and they just disappear forever. Like there is definitely something cool to that as well. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that uh, that is our show i think we we're on episode 007 we talked about some 007 influences we talked about some badass soe world war ii stuff um and we talked about some film stuff while we we're at it so yeah i uh i hope you guys enjoyed it so thanks so much for listening see you next time badass of the week is an iHeartRadio podcast produced by high five content executive producers are andrew jacobs me ben thompson and my co-host dr pat larish writing by me and pat Story editing by Ian Jacobs, Brandon Fibbs, and Allie Lemer. Mixing and music and sound design by Jude Brewer. 
consulting by Michael May. Special thanks to Noel Brown at iHeartRadio. Badass of the Week is based off my website, badassoftheweek.com, where you can read all sorts of stories about other badasses. If you want to reach out with questions or ideas, hit me up at badasspodcast at badassoftheweek.com. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, follow, listen, tell your friends, tell your enemies, and we'll be back next week with another one. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast content. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.